You may be seated. Exciting morning here, right? And uh, in the midst of a busy week, you may hear my voice sounds a little, a little rough this morning. Uh, nothing serious, but if you see me um, coughing a little bit more and keeping my mask in my distance, that's why. Seasonal stuff. And of course, I know in these days that can be a little, little scary. <laughs> but just know this happens every year. And of course, it had to happen in the midst of a busy week on a Wednesday <laughs> and into a Sunday. So... Just if you hear that, or you hear me occasionally uh, cough a little more than usual, promise, nothing serious, that's all that it is. But I'm excited to begin this morning a new sermon series, uh, sort of part one of a multi-part look at the book of Genesis. So, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do find it, open up to the first chapter of the very first book, might even be the very first page, depending on how your Bible's laid out, the book of Genesis and this morning, I will say before we, we, we read, it might, I, I might be a little more technical at some points as we get kind of into the book and might put on my teacher hat rather than my preacher hat at some points, but I promise it, it's done to help lay the trajectory for weeks to come to help us understand uh, this book and I think some, some important issues uh, that sort of surround the book of Genesis. We'll actually be looking at chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2. Uh, in verse 4 this morning. So look with me. We'll begin reading Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And he called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plant yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let, them be, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his works that he'd done in creation. And then verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of God. I know that was somewhat of a long reading, but I think it's important that we consider these famous first words. We often hear about famous last words, don't we? But we don't give first words enough credit, do we? Consider how many of us would recognize these words from Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. We often hear it said, it was the best of times, it was... The worst of times. We know it, but probably few of us have maybe read that whole book recently at all within our life. Plenty of us know the words of Abe Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. At least the opening of it was four score and years ago. And then what comes after that? Right forth on this continent. Some of you are doing a lot better than I thought. There we go. Here's what it is. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And our passage this morning in Genesis 1 is an example of famous first words. Who doesn't know 
the first 10 words of this chapter in Genesis 1.1. They introduce us not just to the first five books of Moses, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They don't just introduce us to that, a collection that is called the Pentateuch or the Torah or the Law, but they introduce us to the whole Bible. And as Christians, we believe they describe the beginning of time and the creation of the universe. But we recognize these words are not without controversy. And they haven't just been controversial since the days of Charles Darwin and sort of the heated discussion people have about origins. But friends, these were controversial in Moses' day because it stood even then in the face of commonly held values and beliefs about the origin of the universe. But sadly, this chapter, in fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not just controversial in the world, but can be rather controversial in the church as well. Believers can tend to go all over the place when it comes to Genesis, and if you were to walk into a bookstore, even a Christian bookstore, and pull a commentary from Genesis randomly off the wall, you might get some crazy off-the-wall things that you hear. I, I found one. To sort of, I actually went to a bookstore and picked some random Genesis commentaries up, and one of them tried to claim that Genesis 1 to 11 is nothing more than mythology, the same way that ancients would worship the sun or the moon, that what Moses was doing here was simply taking the mythology of his day and just decorating it up and changing it, and that's all that this was. And that certainly isn't what Moses is doing. Others, though, try to come to Genesis 1 and want to make it this sort of tight scientific book account like I was reading a high school biology and chemistry book. And that also isn't Moses' intention at all. Before we even begin to talk about science or ancient Near Eastern mythology, I think we should look at the text. As Christians, we're Bible people. We start with what God's Word says, and then we turn and interpret the world from there. It's a wonder how many Christians want to know what other people say about the Bible before they actually come and look at what the Bible says themselves. And so as I listened this week and over the past couple weeks to hours of sermons and lectures and read pages and pages and pages on Genesis, I think we often make this passage much more complicated than it needs to be. Ultimately, Genesis 1 is here to tell us about God. And as we see what it says about God, we begin to understand what Genesis 1 says about creation. See, and you see this in your notes, Genesis 1 seeks to tell us who God is by showing us what God does. And in our passage, you're going to see eight truths about God that simply cannot be missed. Some of these are going to be longer points. Some will be pretty short points overall, but eight truths about God that simply cannot be missed in this passage. First, Genesis 1 teaches us that God exists, that God exists. Now, some of you are looking going, man, that's a little anticlimactic. I was hoping for something a little more, a little more of depth there, but this is important to start there. Look at how, it, look at how the Bible begins, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. It doesn't start with clever arguments for God's existence. It doesn't even really lay out any sort of defense. It simply says God is. Before the beginning, God was, and that God created everything that is. That God is self-existent. If you want your fancy 
theological word you can show off to your friends. This is what the theologians would call God's aseity, his aseity. In other words, God doesn't need anything to support him or to enable him to exist. He has life. In himself, God doesn't need other things. He, he wasn't given birth to. He wasn't created. He was uncreated. And that also means that he is eternal. Before the beginning was, God was. Bottom line, that tells us God is unlike anything else in the world. God is unlike his creation. Have you ever had somebody ask you, who created God? And the answer from Genesis 1.1, no one. Nobody created God because God is an uncreated being. He's absolutely unique. He is not created. And that means God, God's existence isn't contingent on if you believe in him or not. The Bible doesn't start with super concerns of addressing what our minds might be concerned about. The Bible offers some of that later on. But it starts with God simply saying, here I am. And look around How did this get here without me? That's what God starts us with. Despite even what the nations around Israel in Moses' day were teaching, the universe didn't come into existence due to a war between good and evil gods raging, as the Egyptians might have taught. But that the one true and living God created all things, and that he didn't come from anything, and he doesn't rely on anything Or anyone. Everything isn't here by a cosmic accident or out of confusion, but rather because the eternal, self existent creator, God, willed it to be here. And this is where our text goes next God exists, but next, God creates. God creates. What does the rest of verse 1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens. And the earth. It does sort of work as a summary of the whole chapter. And here in verse 1 of the Bible, we get the most significant question answered. Where did everything come from? God made it. Where did everything come from? God put it there. And there's actually two Hebrew words used in this passage to speak of God creating. You want to show off some Hebrew knowledge to your friends? In verse 1, uh, when, when it says, in the beginning God created, the Hebrew word is the word bara. And it's used in verse 21 and 27 to also talk about God creating. But we also see in the passage, it says that God made things. And there's the Hebrew word hasa, and it's used in verse 7, 11, 12, 16, 25, 26, and 31. And if you were to walk into random bookstore, pull a commentary off the wall, there are a lot of commentaries who make a big deal about this difference. That's the whole reason I'm telling you this, is because there are people you'll read That'll go, well, look, he barred some things, and he, and he made other things, and so God, and so they'll say, well, God supernaturally made certain things, but then other things, he just sort of used what he already had. He just sort of prepared some, some existent matter that was already there, and in other words, they seek to make certain elements of God's creation supernatural, and others just very natural. And you'll see these people make one Genesis 1 far more complicated than it needs to be, but they also don't seem to mention the words that are used together in this passage in a couple places. Notice verse 26. I want you to see this. Then God said, let us make, hasa, man in our image, 
after our likeness. And then verse 27, three times. So God created bara, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Or consider chapter 2, verse 4, that sort of bookends Genesis 1.1. There are two pieces of bread on the sandwich here of this passage And it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see that? These are the generations of the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made them. In other words, the important thing we need to see out of this is that God created all things out of nothing. Don't let people buy, use these fancy Hebrew words to make you think, well, God might have like started the process, but really he didn't create anything out of nothing. He just used what was already existing there to make it happen. And again, this is what you'll see out there with some of these commentaries. The Bible tells us that God made everything. The, the Latin word you'll see is ex nihilo, supernaturally, out of nothing. Genesis 1 teaches this by implication, but the rest of the scripture is pretty clear about this. Consider Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Not out of things that are visible. Creation didn't originate from other creation. Creation came from God. And the Hebrew verb bara only ever has God as its noun. God alone creates out of nothing. And I think that means that the best way to take Genesis 1 is at face value. People ask all the time, they'll go, do you really take the book of Genesis, literally. And of course, I say, well, well, first I'd start by going, I, sure, I mean, again, literal is kind of a funny word sometimes because obviously Moses wrote a book, so he uses similes and metaphors and things like that throughout the book, right? He uses parts of speech and things like that, but let's ask, instead of the question of, of literal, let's ask the question of what did Moses intend to communicate? Of what, what we call authorial intent. What was Moses' intent under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What did God intend to communicate? And I think Moses clearly intended to communicate seven historic, consecutive, 24-hour days of creation. I think it's clear that if Moses wanted, that, that, that Moses went to extreme detail to say that. And I think we'll see more next week that that means God created the world mature from the beginning. Notice when he created Adam and Eve, he made them fully grown. So I think when he created things on this earth, he probably made them with some, with some level of age already in them. And that I think that means that Genesis 1 to 11 isn't meant to be read as some, some metaphor or some mythology, but rather as a form of history, some form of historical narrative that, yes, He uses parts of speech and other things in that are important to recognize, but that Moses went to incredible lengths to talk about these days as normal days. Look at the text and see a few things. First, simply put, the word translated day is the word yom, and it means day. We can just shut the Bible and go home, right? But in case you needed some more, 
Every time in the Bible there's a number before a day, that signifies that it's actually meaning a day and not some metaphor for a day. So notice he says the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, and he even includes the refrain evening and morning, which would have reflected the Jews who would have believed that Sunday, for example, actually started last night when the sun went down and goes until the sun goes down today. He's communicating here, hey, hey, my Jewish audience, this is how you're to think about this, evening and morning. Or consider in the second book Moses wrote called the book of Exodus, you've got the Ten Commandments. And commandment number four, Bible drill folks, are it was we need to keep the Sabbath holy, right? That's commandment number four. And in there he says, hey, work six days, rest the seventh, because that's what God did when he created the earth. And it would seem to me that if this isn't meant to be taken at face value, the way Moses intended, then that command makes no sense. And what should astound us here is not that it only took six days for God to create the world, but rather that it took him that long. God took his time. God worked on it. He put detail into this. And not only is this in direct opposition to the origin stories of naturalism and atheism and other, every every view of the world has a story of how everything got here. Don't let you think that, well, Christians have that, but but we we folks that, that are atheists, we don't have any beliefs about how the world got here. No, they have them. And this is just in direct opposition to it. Everything that came didn't come from what already existed. In fact, the Egyptians that the Israelites suffered under believed in a form of this where their gods had to use what was already present to make what was here, but not the God of the Bible. He creates out of nothing. He speaks, and it's there. God exists, God creates, and third, God speaks. God speaks. That's the third point we need to see. Notice how each day follows a general pattern. God speaks. Something is created. He gives creation its proper place. He pronounces it good. And then the refrain, evening and morning, the blank day. The first day, the second day, the third day. It's a general pattern. Each day follows. God speaks. And creates. Psalm 33 6. You can write this one down. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Consider that in these brief six days, God actually speaks ten times. He speaks ten times in these six days. And not only do I think does this display his power, but it displays his heart. That the true and living God desires to communicate. That he isn't silent. He isn't mute. He spoke when all things were made. And in fact, he still speaks through creation. Uh, Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 and 2 declares this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God says something to you with every sunset. On our drive here, with the fog, 
and the, and, the, and the cloudiness, God was shouting to us, look at me. Look how great I am. God's creation pours out speech to who he is. But God doesn't just speak through creation. He also wrote a book. He used human authors to write this book, but God wrote a book because creation can tell you about God. But his book, the Bible, can actually introduce you to God. Creation can speak very generally to us about God's power, his precision, his wisdom. But it's through the Bible that we can actually know him personally and be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. What we are reading this morning is the word of God. We are hearing from the God who created the world and the God who speaks. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and there was sky and sea. He spoke and there was land. He spoke and there were stars and sun and moon. He spoke and animals and man filled the earth. Our God speaks. And fourth, that means that our God rules. So God exists, God creates, God speaks, and fourth, God rules. God has a clear process in how he organized the days. That he didn't just simply speak random activity and chaos into the world, but there was a sure structure and order. And he showed to show his rule over everything. You have this chart in your notes, and it'll be on the screen. But notice something with how God created over these six days. Notice in days one to three, he created a form, light, sky, sea, land. But then in days four to six, he fills them. He fills the light with sun and moon. He fills the the sky and the water with fish and birds. And he fills the land and the vegetation with land animals and man. God in his sovereign rule does the reverse of Genesis 1-2. If you remember, Genesis 1-2 says the earth is formless and void formless and unfilled. And so he forms the earth, light, sky, water, land, and then he fills it with stars and animals and man. And this shows his rule over all things. What he creates, he rules over. From mankind to light itself, God rules and reigns over his creation. He's boss. And this is only made clearer by what he did after he created. Did you notice? He creates... As I read over this, you saw this refrain, he creates, and then he names. Verse 3, he called the light day and the darkness night. Verse 8, he called the expanse heaven. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth. To name it is to own it. To name it is to say, this is mine. And we'll get a look at this in chapter 2 next week. But to name humanity was to, was to say God saying, I am, I am sovereign and the boss over humanity. But then he gives humanity dominion over the creatures that they get to name. He says, hey, mankind, you have a certain responsibility and dominion over certain things that you get to name. Could you imagine being Adam and getting to say, that's a dog. It's a cat. It's a bird. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. And this tells us that God didn't just create the world and leave it to run on its own. So many people like to say, well, creation was kind of like a stopwatch. God just sort of wound it up and let it to run on its own. No, God is governing and ruling the creation by his own power. 
We're told in the Bible that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is sovereign over storms and over earthquakes, over government, over pandemics, over all people in the world. Jesus is king, and he's in control of them. Right now, you are being held together by the sovereign will and decree of God himself. He upholds it by the word of his power. All things hold together because of him. God rules. Fifth, the fifth truth we see is that God purposes. God purposes. Not only does he create structures and forms and then fills them, he gives each thing a purpose. Everything in God's creation is here for a purpose and has a place. Notice, for example, in, on days one and four, he separates the day and the night, each serving their own purpose. He distinguishes sky from sea, and he puts various creatures in each of them. Everything in God's creation isn't the same, but it all serves a different purpose. This is also seen in his creation of mankind. When he created, though he created all of humanity in his image, he created differences between men and women. And we'll look at this a little more next week, but I want to give you a hint of it there in Genesis 1.27. Look with me there. So God created man, and that's mankind. He's speaking generally about humanity there. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And see, this is something our world struggles with, and that's why I bring this up every time I get the opportunity, because our world seems to struggle with thinking that differences instantly means non-equal. And yet, God clearly here tells us that he created men and women, and there's some differences between them, but that they both are equally made in the image of God. That each creation is valuable, but serves a different purpose. Consider this, birds and fish are great, but when fish try to get out of the lake and fly through the air, something's going to go wrong. they got to get back in that water eventually. They serve a particular purpose. He purposes the difference between day and night, not to show that one's better than the other, but to complement each other. God purposes. Sixth, God blesses. God blesses. So we've seen he exists, he creates, he speaks, he rules, he purposes. Sixth, he blesses. The refrain of this passage is that God sees and declares that what he created is good. In fact, the whole passage sort of crescendos. If you know what a crescendo is, where the, the music builds and you get to the bridge of the worship song, you know what I'm talking about, and you get to just the high moment of the song, and Genesis 1.31, look what he says, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then the crescendo sort of continues into chapter 2, where he says in verse 2, and on the seventh day... God finished his work that he'd done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. He says his work is very good, and then he blesses the seventh day, telling us that creation is a good 
gift from God. So many people want to treat the physical things of this world as if they're bad, especially people who want to feel really spiritual. Like, I'm too spiritual to enjoy McDonald's chicken nuggets because that's so worldly. And yet, God created food to be enjoyed. He created things in this world. The goal is not that those things are bad to enjoy, but that we enjoy them properly as God commands. When the fifth and sixth point go together, and we see that creation is good when used for his purposes, then... Then, then I think we're, we're on the right path. Genesis 1 presents a world without bad and only full of good. It presents a world that's different from the one we live in because as we'll see in Genesis 3 when we get there, things went wrong. And we can confess together that the world of Genesis 1 is not the world we fully reside in. There is still good in the world, but I don't know if we would look out and look over everything in the world and go, everything's very good. Everything everywhere. There's no bad anywhere. The Genesis 1 world was a world with no pandemics, no politics, no cruelty, no hopelessness, no depression, and I would even argue probably no Facebook. And it's a world we long to have, isn't it? Who doesn't look out at the world that we live in and long for things to be different and better than they are? I would argue that Genesis 1 is ingrained on the soul of every person God created because we long for the world as it was. Every one of us longs for the world as it was. And the world God made tells us a little bit about who he is. He created the world good, that every good gift comes from a good God. There's many of you today that think that God is an angry ogre in the sky, and he's ready to just drop down the fire, throw the lightning bolts at you, and just knock and just take you out. And he also, we also think that God is a rule setter and that he wants to keep good things from us. That he, he's like, don't enjoy the world. I'm going to take all the fun out of it. But what we see in Genesis 1 is that that's not God at all. That God creates, that it's good, that he blesses. Not only the creation in total, but doesn't he bless us individually with the ability to enjoy it and with good gifts? Closely related, seventh, God blesses because God loves. Seventh, God loves. Loves. Though Genesis 1 and 2, you don't ever actually see it mention God's love, do you? It's never explicitly mentioned. It's behind everything you see. You can write this down and look this up later, but go home and read Psalm 136, and you'll see that God created the world out of his steadfast love, that he's loved us with the gifts he's given us. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. This is to say to humanity who he just created, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Married folks, be fruitful and multiply. God loves us. And then he says, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he he places us over it, and he says, we're loved by him, we're created in his image, and we're given the world to enjoy. See The love of God. He gives us things to enjoy, 
But all things were not created for our glory, but for his glory. God didn't create the world primarily so that he would, so, so that he was, because he was lonely or primarily to be loved, but to display his love. So many people, I heard this in Sunday school one time growing up. I heard a Sunday school teacher tell me one time that God created me and the world because he was lonely. And I'm like, that's a lot of pressure because I'm not that cool of a guy for him to hang out with. Right? Like, that's a lot of pressure of God created me because he was lonely. No, God created the world not because he was lonely, but out of an overflow of the love within himself. Let me show you this. Notice verse 26 again. The sort of turn. God just speaks and says, hey, we're going to create this. But then something happens in verse 26. He says, of Genesis 1, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Us? Our? Our? Who who else is there? What's going on? Right? I hear some of y'all are catching on to where I'm going with this. There's something significant all over these pages. In verse 1, you see God introduces himself with the Hebrew name Elohim, which actually is plural. He introduces himself in the plural to us. And then you see in verse 2, You see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the water. Here I think we see hints of the Christian doctrine called the Trinity. The Trinity Trinity is the teaching of the Scripture that our one God, the one true and living God, exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That God is, yes, one God in essence and being, and we can dive in this at, at another point, but that our one God is a community within himself of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And again, this is stuff we can dive into the depths of later, but one in being, three in persons. This means, friends, that God has never been lonely. Father and Spirit were present at creation. We saw a few weeks ago in Colossians 1, didn't we, that Jesus was present at the creation and all things exist Because of him, this is important because it means that God didn't have to create in order to love, but rather that God created out of an overflow of the love within himself. Let us make man in our image. God created out of his love. Eighth and finally, God redeems. So we've seen that God exists, God creates, God speaks. God rules, God purposes, God blesses, God loves, and God redeems. Y'all been champs to set in through an eight-point sermon. I thought some people would get up and walk away. Uh, The whole of the Bible begins in a garden, but it doesn't end there, does it? It's going to end in a city. The whole of the Bible, the whole of human history is God redeeming and restoring the world back to Genesis 1 and 2, but better. Think of it, I like to call it, where has God taken the world? Eden 2.0. Genesis 1 and 2 plus 2. Even better, the first pages of the Bible set the stage for the final vision of creation. I want you to do this. You're you're in the front part of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I want you to turn it this way and look at the back now to the very last chapter. Revelation chapter 21 You might see some maps in the back. You can skip those, whatever else you might have in the back of yours. But find 
Genesis chapter 22, all the way in the back, and you see this from cover to cover. God's, the consistency of God's word over thousands of years of difference. It's almost as if there was one author behind it all, right? right? It's like the Holy Spirit inspired the whole thing, right? Genesis 1, but we see here a new heavens and a new earth, a fully restored and redeemed universe. The world brought back to Genesis 1, but better. Revelation 22, look at verse 3. No longer... Will there be anything accursed? But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. A new creation marked with God's presence. A new creation marked with a recreation of the sun and the stars. A new creation marked by holiness and God dwelling again with us. And God is bringing the world toward that end through Jesus Christ. That God came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus to live a perfect life. He went and was rejected and died upon the cross for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and suffered all the consequences of the fall of the very bad in the world. But three days later, he rose again from the dead and defeated sin and death and hell. And now he is recreating all things in the reverse of Genesis 1. If you noticed in Genesis 1, he created the world and then put man in it on the sixth day. In his recreating of the world, he starts with recreating humanity. And then he's going to recreate the world. Through Through faith in the finished work of Jesus, God can recreate you. In Christ, the Bible says we are new creations. The new world has already entered in when we believe in Christ and he recreates us. But it doesn't stop there. He promises to then, one day coming, he's going to recreate the world. He's going to rid the world of evil, reverse the curse, and rest again with his people in perfect peace. Recreating mankind, then recreating all things. Through faith in Jesus, you can be a part of this story that God is writing. God also promises that he's going to rid the world of evil And that should scare some of us because that should scare really all of us who are outside of Jesus because so much of what goes on in this world is due to us and our actions. We need Jesus to save us. God is in the business and has been since the beginning of bringing life out of emptiness. Wasn't that what our testimony was about this morning? That God will give you life-giving power. One more verse to look at. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And you can turn there, you can see it on the screen behind me, but notice that Paul frames salvation here, and he wants you to think back to Genesis 1 when he does this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, just as God spoke 
And there it was. So God speaks into our life and will bring life out of death, life out of nothingness, life out of brokenness. Has God spoken life and light into your heart? If so, this morning, you can know this God who speaks and creates and reigns and purposes and blesses and loves and redeems. You can know him and be transformed by him this morning. You can write where you are, call out to him. And pray to him and say, save me where I am. I want to know you, encounter me. And he'll meet you right where you are. And you can talk. If you have more questions, I'd love to talk to you. And there's others here. Please come grab me after the service. Or one of whoever brought you here would love, I'm sure, to talk to you too. And despite the questions we may have about how Genesis 1 fits into everything, and to be honest... I don't have all the answers because Moses didn't offer me all the answers. That wasn't even, Moses wasn't trying to give you something that said, hey, I want you to have this, and I want you to, and I want to also give you all the answers of how it all works. He doesn't give us everything in terms of how does this work with this and this and this and this. But he wants, we need to stop and be stunned that God spoke and it was. And we also need to recognize that this is just the first chapter the preface to the preface of the whole of God's story of redemption. There's so much more to hear and so much more to share about God's work in the world. But for now, Genesis 1 should inspire us to awe and produce humility in us before our creator. And instead of asking, how can this be? Maybe the question is, who is like our God? Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have encountered your word today. We've seen who you are. We've seen that you love, that you pursue, that you created and speak, and that you desire for us to know you. I want to pray for those in this room who maybe don't know you in this way, who've never encountered you in a saving way, that you right now would be at work through your word in their hearts for them to call out to you. Lord, you don't... You don't answer all of our questions before you draw us to yourself. You simply say, live to dead bones and they rise from the dead. So I ask that you would do this to, to those who may be in spiritual deadness and brokenness this morning. Cause them to stand to newness of life in you. I pray that the testimony that was shared this morning would echo through their hearts so they can see that this isn't just words I'm saying, but there's real life change that can happen to them through your death, burial, and resurrection. And Lord, may all of us stand in awe of who you are as our creator, our ruler, and our redeemer. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.